Hello and welcome to the TLDR News Podcast. I'm joined again today by Rory Taylor, TLDR writer, and Zach Michaelis, our editor-in-chief. Hello. How are you both doing? Good. Yeah. 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 Very good. Collectively, yeah. Yeah, Collectively good. good. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're going to do another sort of two-topic podcast. So we'll start off talking about the ECHR and we'll move on to talk about uh, China's plans to build an embassy here, which haven't gone exactly to plan. So... uh, the ECHR, ECHR, it's been a weird story in the last couple of weeks with uh, some Tories suggesting that they might want to try and pull the UK out of it. Uh, but before we get into that, I think it's probably worth understanding a little bit about yeah. what the ECHR actually is. So, Rory, do you want to maybe run us yes. through that? Yeah, it's one of these things that gets really mis, uh, like misinterpreted or, or you know misunderstood, I think. So the first thing to say is that it's nothing to do with the European Union. It's separate. Um and also you've got the ECHR, the European Convention of Hu- on Human Rights, which is basically a convention that aims to protect human rights and freedoms in Europe. And then you've also got the ECTHR, which is the European Court of Human Rights, which is uh, the court that effectively um, you know, judges whether those rights are being upheld. You know, People appeal to that court. Um, so those are the kind of two sides of it. Um, the UK is a party to the convention and it was one of the first ones to, to you know, sign up to it back in the 50s. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's every European country apart from Belarus and Russia is a part of it. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, unlike the EU where you can say, oh yeah, well, Norway, Switzerland, you know, they aren't part of it. This is very, very pan-European with the exception of Russia and Belarus. Um, so, that's, so that's the convention in the court. Um, the reason why it's kind of in the news in the last week or so, is um, it's all related to the government's plans or at least um, goal of stopping the small boats and kind of tackling the, the migration crisis. Um, there's, a, there's a view that uh, it's the European court that is, um, that is scuppering their plans effectively. So there are some Tories, you know, further on the right of the party who advocate leaving the ECHR, you know, fully withdrawing. So, you know, we're not party to the convention, I guess. Um, and the other day, Robert Jenrick, who's the immigration minister, he was asked whether the government would consider leaving the ECHR in order to, you know, stop the boats. And he said that they'll do whatever is necessary, you know, not a denial, basically. Yeah. Um, which led people to kind of think, you know, is this something the government's going to pivot to maybe ahead of the next election? Are they going to say we'll leave it or we'll have a referendum on leaving it? Um, but since then, uh, the government has um, made clear that they don't actually, ha- they don't plan to, they kind of, clarified that Jenrick wasn't saying we might uh, leave. So, so that's not part of the government plan at the moment, but it hasn't stopped those vocal Tory MPs from saying, you know, we really mm. should do this, the likes of Lee Anderson and Jonathan Gullis, um, who, who do want to leave. It's worth reiterating that were we to pull out, it would put us in a very small group yeah. with, as you said, Russia and Belarus, which isn't a particularly great look. No. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's a really strange one. Zach, do you see this as a potential at all? No, I don't think this is happening at all. I think <clears throat> there's always been a contingent of Tory MPs who want to leave the ECHR. Um, it's, it's never quite clear, like, why they want to leave the ECHR. I mean, nominally, it's about making it legally easier to implement more and more restrictive immigration policies. Um, but there's also this sort of, like, general, like, anti-establishment, anti-European vibe to it. Um, that's sometimes sort of alluded to. Uh, but the actual sort of like governing bit of the Tory party sometimes slightly appeases them, but never actually follows through with it. Like 
that they know that it would be like frankly quite ludicrous and really damning to the UK's international credibility. Um, I think the only interesting thing about this whole episode is, is the fact that we're hearing these sorts of things once again, and the fact that ministers haven't denied it outright explicitly. Um, it's just it's a symptom of the fact that again, Tory unity is breaking down, and that as the polling gets worse and worse, which is something you've done a video on today. Um, Sunak is finding it harder and harder to keep the party together and we're, that once that happens you just start hearing angrier and angrier noises from the right of the parliamentary party It seems as well that whenever they get themselves in a, a, a tricky position in the polls they, they just do resort to um, going further right again and they, 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 those opinions start to break mm. out um, in, into the news uh, which is, which is a, you know, it's, it's an odd situation um, it's as you say. It's mainly Sunak not being able to keep a control over the party, really, and it shows that that fragmentation yeah. is still. Especially when one of the people saying we should leave is Lee Anderson, who's literally mm. the deputy chair of the party. I know he's not yeah. technically in government, but he he is, you know, he's up there. I mean, he said the other day that the government had been had failed in their approach to to migration and the boats, um, which is quite a bold thing for someone yeah. who leads oh, in the government. Yeah, yeah, to, to say that. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a rift there between Lee Anderson wing, who now seemed he's been elevated, obviously, within the party. But I don't, you know, that was done by Sunak to appease that wing of the party. But now it's mm. kind of given him a bigger platform to criticise the government on things. So I'm not sure if, if Sunak will regret that at some point. But, um, yeah, it's not it's not been great for him because of it. Yeah, something I don't know is, is how much this is to sort of cover up, cover off the possibility of like a Nigel Farage outfit mm. on the right. I mean, we always... We always hear talk about this, and there's been some polling recently that suggests that Reform UK is getting into double digits at the national level. And that, that might be playing into this. It might be that some Tory MPs are worried that you know if those numbers actually materialise on the national level, that'd be terrible for them. Mm. I think that anxiety is misplaced, just because like while that might be true in polling... Um, these reform voters never show up anywhere. You know, they never show up in by-elections, for example. And, um, you know, you never meet a reform voter. I mean, that, that might be saying something about my sort of metropolitan liberal elite bias, but I think it's more of a sort of like a protest thing that happens when someone polls you, but it never actually materialises when but you actually get into the voting booth. I suppose it's the risk versus reward, though, isn't it? Because if those voters do materialise, the Tories sort of know that they're not achieving power next year anyway. So at this point, they're trying to keep keep a party together mm. to fight future general elections. Oh. If that reform party exists, and if they're, if, if they're wrong, and you, know, you just happen to not have bumped into any reform voters, but they do exist, and they, they are about 10%, then you're not just looking at the Tories being reduced to 90 seats. Um, you're seeing them you know, electoral oblivion for them in the next election. So I suppose trying to uh, mitigate against that, even though it seems unlikely, yeah, but is probably sensible. I take your point about party unity. I think that's a really good point. And that actually this might be to make sure that, you know, if, if, if make sure reform can't appear on the right, because that would threaten the unity of the Tory party. But there are political... We're their survival at the next election. No, but, the, but my point here is that there are political pros and cons to both tactics. Like if you tack mm. right, yeah, sure, you cover off the reform thing, but you also lose voters in the sort of like more moderate conservative areas. You lose voters in like the blue wall in the sort of like leafy suburban southern seats, you know, Devon, around London, that sort of thing. Um, and obviously if you tack left, sure, you open up a bit of space for, well, tack left as in like, if you go sort of like more one nation conservative, then you do have a bit more space for reform or someone, but I don't know. I don't think Richard Tice is really a sufficiently capable politician to take advantage of that. 
Um, but you probably win back some voters in those more moderate areas. So like there are political pros and cons to, to, to both moves, as it were. Um, but I think the interesting question is like, on immigration, where is the politically optimum space for the Tory party? Like, they're clearly struggling to find anything that they can make political hay out of at the moment because mm. every policy fails and every time they're looking competent and nasty. Um, I don't think that's a partisan con, by the way. I think that's like genuinely just, it's, it's so clear that all the policies are failing uh, and it doesn't really matter where you lie on the political spectrum. That, that is the consensus amongst voters. Um, but like, where is, you know, is there some sort of policy that's like sufficiently right wing to keep all of those quite sort of like, let's say, socially conservative voters around, um, but not scare off all of the sort of like blue wall Tories. Um, and if there is that nice middle ground for the Tories, is it actually sort of like, is it possible for them to occupy that middle ground while keeping the parliamentary power to be happy? Or will the parliamentary party, for ideological reasons, still pull them further to the right? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I th yeah, so I think that's the, that's, that's the issue for Sunak at the moment. Yeah, he's still in his role as trying to mediate um, both the, the, the wider membership and, and his own MPs, which is an interesting position for him to be in. But uh, we should probably move on and discuss uh, your favourite topic, uh, Zach. Yeah. Move on and talk about China. So do you want to explain what this, this story is about? You've got it on the computer. So yeah. Oh, okay. I can Rory, explain Zach can jump in with a <laughs> yeah, high-level analysis. Okay, so this is a this is an interesting story. Um, finally, we're going to talk about something that's not net zero and migration. Um, so bit peak on strap net zero, in. But yeah, I'm strapped <laughs> in. Let's go. Um, yeah, so China uh, a while ago, uh, back in 2018, I think, bought a site in uh, central London uh, where they wanted uh, to build a new embassy, um, and they spent pounds uh, on the site, and it's near the Tower of London, so it's you know proper central location it's the old royal mint yes which yeah, is quite so it's like where a, we used to make our coins historic very historic building no london prices it's probably just like a one-bed flat yeah. <laughs> very um, good <laughs> uh yeah so um they obviously do have an embassy but yeah. this is to build a new kind of fancier one um however after buying the site uh, the local council rejected their planning permission tower hamlets council i quite like the dynamic of <laughs> a london borough council tower hamlets taking on you know the China. Chinese government yeah, is saying, like no, a, you can't. Yeah. A, a random neighbour being like, the noise <laughs> yeah. is going to be too yeah. loud. Yeah. Um, so they, We're so concerned they, about the litter. Yeah, well, yeah. the concerns actually, um, I think they obviously consult residents on these kind of plans, yeah. and some of the residents were worried about uh, possible you know, security threats. They had concerns about whether the area around it might be restricted and the impact on protest and free speech and that type of thing. Um, and especially these recent stories about secret Chinese police stations, um, you know, lots of concerns all around that type of thing. So, Do you want to flash that out a little bit? Because people might not know yeah, what we're talking secret about. Secret Chinese police it stations. It almost sounds like a conspiracy theory yeah. when you just mentioned it in passing. Yeah, um, yeah basically, um, China has been accused of operating these, um, well, they've been dubbed secret police stations around the country, around the world, sorry, including the UK. And they're kind of um, framed as places that Chinese nationals living abroad can go to for help with, I don't know, visas and all sorts of things. But actually, the accusation is that they're used to monitor and target dissidents and people who kind of, um, Chinese nationals who've left but are speaking out against the Chinese yeah, government. Because they're saying that that's very, very illegal. <laughs> yes. Not allowed to do that at all. Yeah, so, um, so naturally, with a big new embassy on the cards, local people might have been a bit concerned about mm. that. So Tower Hamlets rejected the planning permission. So the Chinese government now sitting on, with this big piece of land, lovely old building that they can't do anything with. 
So there is uh, an August, or there was an August 10th deadline for China to appeal that uh, planning decision, so that has passed, and they appear not to have done, but they have spoken out and they are frustrated with the government for not intervening. You can, I guess, from their perspective, they're seeing why are we being blocked by this local government? The UK government should step in and say, let them build the embassy. So it's this kind of battle between Tower Hamlets and China, and with China trying to get Rishi Sunak on side. But I guess more than just being a kind of interesting story, it does have implications on the UK-China relationship and Sunak's policy on China, which has you know come under fire before, um, which I guess, Zach, you might want to jump in and talk about yeah, well, how it fits into that wider thing. I think, yeah, it does, this story does touch on two of my favourite topics, which is one, planning permission, <laughs> and then two, UK's like, foreign policy, but specifically mm. the China policy. And I think the China policy is really interesting because... It doesn't really get any attention, um, but the way that, China, that the UK orients itself in relation to China tells you so much about like Sunak's sort of foreign policy ambitions generally, like where he wants to position himself, like vis-a-vis the EU, America, and sort of like like the emerging mm. world. Because there's loads of like different narratives pulling in different directions. You know, on the one hand, he sort of wants to repudiate the EU. He wants to keep the Brexiteers happy, and he wants to be like this sort of you know, um, global Britain, you know, to continue that Brexit narrative. And that that involves, for example, like developing trade links with emerging markets. You know, that's why we joined the CPTPP, for example. And like China would be a really obvious example of that. And Sunak is also in many ways a a neo-Cameron, neo-Osborne politician. Um, He is of that strain of the Conservative Party, you know, fiscal conservative. Uh, But one of their big policies, obviously, was that whole golden era of, UK-China relations, if you remember back in like the 2010s when we were really buddying up. To, are you thinking um, of that video? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were really buddying up to the Chinese. There's this great video that we were always clearly thinking of. I think it's 2010 when it's yeah. Xi Jinping goes to visit David Cameron and they just go to like a pub yeah. in the countryside together. Um, it turns out, by the way, that they bugged, the Chinese bugged that entire <laughs> encounter. So oh, quite entertaining. But um, yeah, it's very surreal to go watch that footage back and mm. watch like Xi Jinping just pulling a pint. <laughs> what's going on? Um, and I, Sunak, I don't think he really cared about it at all um, in the um, when he was when he was campaigning for leader because he's fundamentally focused on like domestic issues like the economy. That's his main thing, yeah. Um, but Truss saw an opportunity to attack Sunak on it, and there was this moment in the leadership campaign where there were reports that Truss was going to attack Sunak on, on China. He's soft on China. Um, and I think this was partly because Tom Tugendhat previously been in the race and he's always been a big China hawk. It's been one of his like real like areas of interest. And so he sort of brought the debate towards that, that thing. And, um, and Sunak at the time, just I think just because it was politically sensible, just went, oh, no, I'm going to do everything on China. You know, I'm going to cut them out of Hinkley Point C. I'm going to close Confucius Institutes. You know, if we need to, we'll put whatever sort of bans we can on like Chinese investment will screen Chinese investments in public services la da 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 but when he's come into office he's actually reversed some of that and I think that's interesting because that is an active choice yeah Confucius Institutes are a great example so Confucius Institutes are sort of these like almost like educational centres where you can go and learn Mandarin and they're organised by the CCP and they're basically there to teach people the Chinese language and about Chinese culture and they're, they're sort of like soft power vehicles yeah so like we have our equivalents. What they call the, the British, British Council. British Council, yeah. exactly. And they've become a point of contention uh, in sort of, especially American politics recently. So the Americans are furious about them. Um, and we've inherited some of that. Like we've sort of started being like, oh, should we get worried about them? But Sunak in May made an active decision to 
basically row back on a campaign promise and just keep the Confucius Institutes open. And I thought that was interesting because it does suggest that he probably wants to take a slightly softer line on China mm. than at least like Truss, who's now doing the you know the, the, the sort of um, speaker circuit talking about an economic NATO to combat China, whatever that actually means. Um, and probably also Johnson, who was sort of like just generally optimistic and buoyant about <laughs> being mates with China, but then when he had to sort of act a bit sort of more manly and bellicose, I think sort of post-Ukraine, because his image changed then, he got tough on China as well. And I think that there's a couple of things that are probably motivating that middle ground. I think one other symptom, by the way, that, of the fact that Sunak wants to keep a middle ground with China is his accession to the CPTPP. Mm. Because the thing with the CPTPP is it was originally envisioned, it's basically this massive trade block that includes loads of uh, Southeast Asian countries. Um, and it was originally envisioned by the Obama administration as this, it was supposed to be this massive trading area, single market almost, that if the Americans were in it, they could set the standards for certain trade practices. Yeah? And then the Chinese would eventually have to join, apply strong because it'd just be so big, it'd be too good an opportunity not to. Mm. And that would allow the Americans to use it as a vehicle to sort of like reform Chinese trade practices. And the, that's one of the big reasons, probably the best reason for joining the CPTPP. And um, that's why we've joined. It's not because it helps our GDP. I mean, like, as all those headlines told us, like it makes like 0.01% difference to our annual GDP. The main reason is it's geopolitics. It's about basically having leverage over China in the future when slash if China applies to join. It has sort of applied to join, but it's one of those things where it's it almost like a token cheeky application to join because it was after Trump pulled out. I think there are a couple of things that are motivating this. I think the first thing is that Sunak is a real, like because his priority is domestic finances, Sunak is... I think instinctively very wary about all this talk in America and in Europe about de-risking and like uh, decoupling and sort of um, reducing our strategic dependencies on China uh, in certain like key areas. And th the UK isn't particularly exposed to China. Like we're not that reliant on China for many things, you know, like I think everyone's reliant on like Taiwan for like semiconductors and everyone's to some extent reliant on China for stuff like solar technology and onshore wind. But we've actually got a pretty good renewables base. We've got a, already a pretty, pretty well-functioning wind industry, not much solar, but we don't really need solar anyway. And so we, we're not that like reliant on them, but I think Sunak is still wary that in, like putting restrictions on trade between the UK and China could be bad for the economy and specifically bad for inflation because mm. that's what, why he backtracked on those Brexit border checks is because he realised that putting any sort of friction in between our exports and imports could do bad things for inflation and that's his like priority at the moment. And I think you see like, and I think that's essentially what's motivating his sort of middle ground China policy. And I think the interesting thing about this is just like whether or not it's sustainable because Sunak's a really interesting case study for whether individual countries can basically ignore the US, especially individual like American allies. You mm -hmm. know, like can, if, if the UK can ignore the US and just like, ah, oh, we're just gonna stay quiet and sort of keep trading with China and they'll be okay and they get away with it, it'll send a signal to a lot of European countries who are basically, who think the same thing as the US, I think they don't really say it out loud, but the vast majority of European countries clearly don't want to start de-risking or decoupling. The only real piece of evidence you have for this is the fact that Josep Borrell, the EU's, is he foreign policy chief? Yeah, foreign, whatever the title is. Yeah, whatever is, the technical yeah. title is, he actually admitted, he said in an interview, I think with Reuters, that 
all the European leaders he was talking to were terrified of de-risking, but they wouldn't say it out loud, which is a bit peak of him to do because they all <laughs> clearly said it in confidence and he was like, oh, well, my mates don't want to do it. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to see if this policy is sustainable and how much pushback Sunak gets, if he gets any at all, he's done well being quite quiet about yeah. it so far. Um, and what this says about what America expects of its allies when it comes to China going forward. Sorry, that was an enormous rant, yeah. but I, I like it. The, it the audience tends to like the rants, so yeah. I'm sure they're not <laughs> going to be complaining. I, I was going to say, it's interesting how in the US, for example, politicians can, they really use the anti-China stuff for political gain. You know, they can come out and say yeah. really strong things on China and it's popular with the people they're, you know, trying to win over. But that doesn't seem to exist here or or either the government hasn't, you know, tried to galvanise that kind of feeling. Because you kind of think that there might be, you know, if Sunak did start taking a stronger line on China, that would be something that might bring people on his side with that. But I don't know, it feels like we have a, diff a different, the country has a different feeling on it than in the US, for example. Yeah, I think, we it's, I think it's such an interesting thing. I, th I think actually the political capital, the political advantage that can be gained is sometimes overstated in the US. Mm. I don't think actually Americans... Well, they are more worried about China than we are, but it's more just sort of about giving hawkish vibes. Yeah. Americans love that sort of like America first vibe. That's obviously a massive generalization, <laughs> but, you know, we're journalists. <laughs> um, but the, the other thing I think about that is like Americans just have this luxury that they, they can worry about China. I mean, you know, we are singularly focused on our appalling domestic situation and... The Americans just aren't. The Americans have achieved what you might describe as a soft landing. Inflation's come down. Economic growth looks, like, strong, at least by, like, recent standards, especially, actually, at least by sort of, like, peer standards. You know, European economies would give an arm and a leg for American levels of growth. That means that Americans have the sort of space, they have the political bandwidth to care about foreign policy in a way that we just sort of don't. And I, I, mean, I think the other thing, by the way, is that, obviously, Americans and America just has a very different self-image politically than mm -hmm. we do. I think... Most people are pretty pessimistic about the UK in the UK. You know, we live in a declining empire. There's nothing left for us here, you know. Um, but the Americans are still, well, they still want to maintain their superpower status. And obviously that has a very different psychological impact because you see the Chinese, you see them as a sort of threat to your hegemony, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. That might be too grandiose, but you know what I mean. Um, whereas we see That's the not, Chinese yeah. and we're like, well, you're bigger than us, fine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> What was it? You said something else interesting in there. Like many, many interesting I things. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we, we don't have to talk about anything else. True. I think we've already. Oh, the last thing I'll say. I think okay. The, the last thing I say is that you see a lot of the, the 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 Americans pushing back against the EU a lot, and the Americans trying to convince the Europeans to take a stronger stance on on China. And I think that's in part because the, the Europeans are just louder about it. You know, Macron is just a lot more willing than say Sunak to go out there and say all those controversial things he does say about uh, about china um i, I love him so much for it he <laughs> makes great headlines but it's also just a symptom of the fact that we are just less relevant i think and i think i do think that and you see this especially in the way that biden talks about the uk they do like sunak the americans but i do think that the experience of johnson truss and brexit has done damage to the way that the U.S. sees us, and especially the way the Biden administration sees yeah. us. Uh, and you, I, th I think you saw that when he came to visit the U.K. and saw mm. Sunak for a very brief period of time and then went straight to Ireland. And had a great time. Had a great time. <laughs> Did a full tour, little yeah. holiday. Didn't we have that very sad photo of them in a restaurant? And then he was in like an yeah. Irish pub or something. Yeah. yeah. 
And I think, yeah, and I think that that means that the Americans just, they don't just, they just don't care as much about we do and about, about us as they care about what the Europeans think. And I think also recently the EU has sort of established itself as a bit more of a geopolitical player, or at least more so than us. Um, and so that's the Americans like set of focus of attention, which is a bit sad. But then again, I think Sunak doesn't really mind. I think Sunak doesn't really care for the, um, the special relationship in the same way that say Johnson did. I think that was a, a big way that Johnson imagined Brexit is that it would be an opportunity to sort of like shift over towards the US. Um, and I think Sunak is just less fussed about that. Mm. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've been away for a week. So. Yeah, you've got a lot to talk <laughs> about. To talk about. We've yeah. almost avoided ending a podcast about by talking about the terminal decline of the UK, but we, we kind oh, of yeah, you did it save there. it. To yeah. be fair, you did save yeah. it. So thank you for that. So on that lifting note, I don't want to yeah. uh, uh, go into another topic <laughs> in case it undermines the positive ending. Yeah. Yeah. So I think here's probably a good time to call it. So okay. uh, thank you, Zach, and thank you, Rory. No problem. Namaste. Cool.